Welcome back to The Durst Show. In a dramatic announcement today, Justice uh, Sam Alito said that the ruling overturning so Roe versus Wade, the leak of that ruling put justices' lives at risk. He said it gave people a rational reason to think that the eventual decision could be prevented, quote, by killing one of us. And we know that at least one justice came close to being killed. We know that Justice Kavanaugh had somebody on his lawn close to his house um, with weapons um, and, and with an intention to kill him in order to change the vote. Now, one vote would have changed it if there had been, if one of those justices, God forbid, had been killed, um, who knows who would have replaced him and whether the replacement would be in time. Um, probably Justice Roberts' decision simply upholding the Mississippi statute would have become the law and Roe versus Wade probably wouldn't have been overruled. You know, assassinations in American history and in world history have worked. The Lincoln assassination absolutely worked. The Civil War failed and then Lincoln's assassination did away with Reconstruction and recreated kind of the segregated South, um, the Klan and Jim Crow, all are a direct result of Lincoln's assassination. Robin's assassination uh, probably changed the, the, the nature of the Israeli-Palestine uh, conflict. Um, obviously, the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand caused the First World War and tens of millions of people killed as the result of that. So there are rational reasons for assassinating. They're immoral, they're wrong, but they're not irrational. And that's what Alito is basically saying, that the leak of the decision, his decision, which turns out to have been what he, what was leaked, the leaker got it right. That, that decision could have easily been different had had one of the justices who sided with him, remember the vote was four to five to one to three. And um, if one of the five, God forbid, had been killed, um, it, it, could, it could easily have been different. And there are people who have so, have such strong views on, on, on abortion that uh, they might have been motivated to kill. So I have another question, a much harder question than Justice Alito's question. If justices' lives were at stake, and if justices could have been killed, why has this crime not been solved? Why do we still not know who leaked this material? Why do we not know who put justices' lives at risk? The pool of possible criminals is very, very small compared to many crimes. Obviously, the only suspects are people who had access to the draft opinion. That would be the justices, the law clerks, and perhaps some people in the printing office or who knows what else. But the number, you know, would be in the, in the dozens, um, not in the in the thousands. It should be an easy case to solve. Um, 
also, obviously, computers are involved. There has to have been uh, computer evidence. N number one, somebody had to get the opinion off a computer. Number two, we don't know whether they sent it to Politico via the Internet or whether they hand-delivered it in some parking lot like uh, Deep Throat. We don't know that. And we're never going to know that. And I have to tell you, I smell a rat here. Um, this smell is not a good one, uh, that they haven't yet solved this crime. Uh, I am critical of Chief Justice Roberts, who I like very much. He was a great student at Harvard Law School, the nicest man. He took my granddaughter around the Supreme Court and showed her. He's, he's a terrific guy. He made a mistake. He shouldn't have had the marshal's office be in charge of the investigation. The marshal's office. I know the marshal's office. I've worked with them. I was a law clerk. I called the marshal's office uh, uh, in order to, you know, get a ticket to the Supreme Court. The marshal's office isn't equipped to solve a situation like this. You know, some people say it wasn't a crime. Well, that remains to be seen. We don't know all the circumstances. It very well might be a crime. But the marshal's office is not going to solve this. And, 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 and one of the reasons the marshal's office is not going to solve this is this was an inside job. This was somebody in the Supreme Court who did this. And I'm not sure the marshal's office is incentivized to really solve this crime. It's not even clear to me that the justices are incentivized to solve this crime. After all, it might have been a justice, unlikely, but it might have been a justice. More likely, it would have been a justice's law clerk, which would make that justice look terrible in terms of the judgment she or he had in appointing that person as a law clerk. It could have been somebody in the Supreme Court printing office who's friendly with the justices. The, the Supreme Court's a small place. It's an intimate place. Um, everybody knows each other. Uh, and, and, and the idea of making one of them the only investigator in the case, for me, raises very, very serious questions. Look, as you probably know, I'm not a big fan of special counsel uh, because especially when special counsel is appointed to prosecute somebody with a name who they know, then of course they have to prosecute them and get a conviction. That's their job. This is a different situation. This situation calls for an outside special investigator, somebody who has vast experience in an investigation. Let me give you a couple of names. Louis Free, um, the former head of the FBI, would be a perfect person uh, uh, for this. Or one of the former heads of the CIA. Uh, or a former attorney general, Mike Mukasey. Or a former member, high-ranking member of the criminal division of the Justice Department. Give them a budget. Give them subpoena power. Give them the right to really get to the bottom of this, and we will get to the bottom of this. Right now, 
it, we're not going to get to the bottom of this. Right now, remember now, it's already been a long, long time by standards of investigation. We're nowhere, as far as I know. We have no suspects. We have no idea. I would like to know what the marshal's office is doing. I would like to know what the nature investigation is. Uh, I would like to know a lot of things about that. Maybe if and when the Republicans take over the House, as it looks likely but not certain that they'll do, maybe they'll set up a committee, not the January 6th committee, but the whatever the date was when this thing was leaked committee, with a, a substantial number of Democrats and, and Republicans on it that can look into what the marshal's office is doing, what it's done, um, what the leads are, um, and whether you need a special investigator. Again, I haven't said a special prosecutor because we're not sure yet it's a crime. Uh, it certainly is a core violation of legal ethics. And I suspect that when the entire information comes out, may very likely involve some criminal behavior, but I'm not sure of that. And I never want to weaponize the criminal justice system. But this is a mystery that has to be solved. This cannot be one of those mysteries that remain with us and become parlor games of guessing. I've been involved in a number of those parlor games of guessing. People have guessed who's law clerks. Uh, people divide. You know, some people say, oh, it was a Democratic law clerk, um, somebody who was against the overruling of Roe versus Wade. And the purpose of the leak was to put pressure um, through perhaps threats of court packing, etc., to make sure that this draft opinion doesn't become the opinion. That's one theory. Another theory, it was leaked by a member of the majority, a Republican, uh, in order to lock in the five justices who eventually went along with Justice Alito's decision. Right now, it's guesswork. We just don't know. And I want to know. And what I really want to know is whether the justices want to know. You know, if the justices and the chief justice and the marshal's office really, really wanted to get to the bottom of this, I think they would. I think they can. Uh, with subpoena power, you can subpoena internet, you can subpoena uh, computers. You know, I'm not in favor of doing all of that. Obviously, without probable cause, I want to make sure the Fourth Amendment isn't uh, violated. You can also give people immunity. Uh, you can give law clerks who may be involved immunity so that they could tell the whole truth and wouldn't have a Fifth Amendment privilege. So far, as far as I know, nobody has been interrogated. Nobody has been questioned. Nobody has been subpoenaed. Nobody has been deposed. Nobody has had to plead the Fifth Amendment. Nobody has had to hire a lawyer. Uh, nobody has done anything. Uh, it's yesterday's news, but it's not yesterday's news. Justice Alito has very correctly made it today's news. If, in fact, there was a risk to the life, if, in fact, the leak did cause this person to go to Justice Kavanaugh and, 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 and threaten his life, essentially, or if it's responsible for uh, other uh, perhaps unlawful protests, people being uh, prevented from having um, dinner and 
having nights at home with their family. I believe there is a right to protest uh, decisions, even draft decisions, but sometimes the protests don't aren't protected by the by the First Amendment. There is a statute that says you can't protest in front of the homes of judges, justices, witnesses, probably unconstitutional as it applies to justices and appointed judges who don't have to worry, have to have thick skin. But um, this can have a real impact. And, and Justice Alito, in his statements, talked about how this really had an impact on the Supreme Court. And, and, and what do you think he means by that? I think he really means by that that he is suspicious that this was an inside job involving at least law clerks. Now the question is, if it involved law clerks, did a justice wink and nod? Um, This is a serious issue. This goes to the heart of our system of law and, and, and the idea of just letting it go. So So I'm glad that Justice Alito uh, made this statement and maybe he can provoke an an investigation, a real investigation. I like Justice Alito. I didn't like the opinion at all. I disagreed with it fundamentally. I thought it was judicial activism. I thought it went way too far. Uh, There was no reason for the Supreme Court to overrule Roe versus Wade. All they had to do if they believed that the Mississippi statute was constitutional and that's the only case that was before them. All they had to do was uphold the Mississippi statute, uh, which provided for abortions in the beginning of of pregnancy instead of reaching out and overruling Roe versus Wade in a case that didn't present that issue directly and where Mississippi itself in its cert petition didn't ask them to overrule Roe versus Wade, then they played bait and switch. Once they got certiorari, they said, oh, now we really would like you to overrule Roe versus Wade. That's not the way the law should operate in the Supreme Court. And so we have to do something uh, about this. We have to make sure that that Justice Alito is not ignored. I have to tell you, I like Justice Alito. My 50th anniversary as a law clerk, the justices invited us to have lunch with them and Uh, I had an empty seat next to me. I had Justice Ginsburg on one side, and we talked about our mothers, both of whom worked in the Garment District of New York. And then the empty seat on my left side was filled by Justice Alito. And he said, Alan, I really wanted to sit next to you because I wanted to tell you that you're the reason I became a criminal lawyer. He became a prosecutor. But he was so nice to me. He said that he was a law clerk in a case where I was representing the defendant who had gotten a long prison term in a white collar crime in New York, and that the judge had denied bail, Judge Lacey in New Jersey. And I wouldn't give up. I chased uh, the appellate court judge around the courthouse. It was July 4th. And I finally got him to grant the stay. And and Alito said he was so impressed with my determination and my unwillingness to give up that uh, he decided uh, he wanted to be a criminal lawyer. And he said he also read my book, The Best Defense. Of course, he became a prosecutor. And then a conservative uh, justice, but uh, nonetheless, uh, he did follow in my footsteps, went to Yale Law School, went to, um, became a law clerk, and then became a criminal lawyer on the other side. I have enormous respect for prosecutors. I tell my students to become prosecutors um, because prosecutors really are the gatekeepers. They have a much greater impact in many respects on the criminal justice system than defense attorneys do. We play defense, they play offense. 
and um, they really determine who gets prosecuted and who doesn't. But just going back to what I've said before, any decent prosecutor, any decent FBI agent with subpoena power and with the power of investigation that comes along with independent or special investigators can solve this mystery. The question is, who wants it solved? I do, and you do. But who doesn't want it solved? That's the question. Is this a cover-up? Is this something where the Supreme Court would just as soon not have it disclosed who leaked this information? I smell a rat here. And when I smell a rat, I don't give up. I'm going to fight for this. I'm going to push hard to make sure that there is a real investigation and a real determination. I want to know who leaked this. And you want to know who leaked this. And in a country governed by the rule of law with transparency, no one is above the law. Not law clerks, not justices. So we have to find out, were any justices complicit in this leaking? Are any justices covering up? Do they know who may have leaked? Do they suspect? Do they have a basis for their suspicion? I think there ought to be an investigation, and I think justices ought to be questioned under oath as to what their state of knowledge is. They are not above the law. This leak affected all of us. It affected the country. It affected judicial decisions. It affected the safety of justices. And I'm not satisfied, and you shouldn't be satisfied, with the current state of lack of knowledge. So let's stay on this story. I'm going to write about it, and I'm going to advocate for it. And let's see where we go. Let's hear what you have to think about this, too, with your letters and your comments. Okay, so let's go back to letters from yesterday and the day before's show. Um, I asked what Kanye West uh, should have done to him, should he be canceled, etc. Many of the letters said, no, he shouldn't be canceled. Let the marketplace of ideas operate. Let him be exposed for the phony he is. Um, uh, if Adidas wants to keep him on, we don't have to buy Adidas sneakers. We certainly don't have to buy sneakers with his name on it. So most of the letters were in favor of not uh, uh, canceling him. Now, some of them <laughs> or in favor of not canceling him because they agreed with him. A lot of, a lot of typically anti-Semitic mail that I got. Oh, Kanye West is right. Jews control the bank. There is a Jewish conspiracy, and then you know they name, they name uh, the people who are in positions of authority in banks or in, in media companies. Those aren't the Jews. Those are individual people. I have no idea whether they go to synagogue, whether they support Israel, whether they identify as Jews, whether they're married to Jews, whether their children are Jewish, whether their parents on one side are Jewish. I have no idea. The idea that Jews control anything, the only thing Jews control is Israel, and they even can't make up their mind every of the month, there seems to be an election. So this idea that Jews control the banks, Jews control Disney, Jews control Twitter, Jews control uh, Facebook, 
It's just blatant anti-Semitism. Jews as such don't control uh, anything. Uh, there are individual people who happen to be Jewish who have risen to the top. Um, many have not. Uh, people don't realize how many poor, poverty-stricken Jews there are in, in Borough Park, uh, where I came from, or Williamsburg, and other, other places. And here's a related question to that. Professor, why do some Jews seem to be anti-Semitic? She's right. Absolutely right about that. I've seen members of my conservative shul congregation say some very awful things about, about Chabad. Chabad is a great organization, very orthodox, ultra, you could say, orthodox. They're called, um, you know, they're, they're, they are called by some extremists. It was founded by a family from a town in Eastern Europe called Lubavitch, and they're called the Lubavitch Hasidim. Um, you know, they wear beards and payas, and they wear their fringes, their tzitzis out, and um, they, they, they look different from some of us, um, uh, but they are a great organization. They have a, a sub-organization called Aleph, which helps people in prison all over the world, making sure that they have good conditions, decent conditions, decent food, decent, decent uh, health care. They do so many other good things. There's a Chabad at Harvard. I spoke at the Chabad this weekend at, at Yale. Um, but because they're different, um, there is a lot of attack on them by, my, by, by, by conservative and reform Jews. Some, not, not all. Look, I remember my, my mother and grandmother were, you know, both very, very Orthodox Jews uh, from Poland, and they didn't like Hungarian Jews. They didn't like Romanian Jews. I mean, the old joke was, what's the difference between a Romanian Jew and a Hungarian Jew? They'll both sell you their grandmother, but at least the Romanian will deliver. You know, that's the kind of joke that went around in my uh, uh, neighborhood. Um, uh, again, Jews are so divided like everybody else. Blacks are divided. Latinos are divided. You know, everybody is divided. There, there are very few coherent groups, particularly ethnic or racial groups where everybody agrees with everybody else. Even Kanye West, you know, he's very conservative, very Republican, and 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 boasts uh, a statement, "White Lives Matter," which obviously is designed just to undercut Black Lives Matter. So you can't generalize, and I think it's terrible the way some Jews uh, attack uh, Chabad or other Orthodox uh, Jews. Look, every community has its problems, and it's perfectly okay to point out problems within a community. Uh, there is a problem today in, in, in New York and other places where ultra-Orthodox yeshivas, which are Jewish day schools, uh, aren't, uh, according to the government, uh, teaching up to standards um, in secular subjects like math and geography and history. They're focusing on, on religious subjects. That's an issue. You can take positions on that. By the way, Chabad is not part of that. Their schools are excellent and uh, meet all the, the standards. So there is a lot of kind of internal discrimination by one group of Jews against the other. When, when I was growing up, it was the German Jews who disliked the Polish Jews. Uh, there was a club in New York, uh, the Harmony Club, that uh, was founded by German Jews. And when I was a kid, Polish Jews had a hard time becoming members of that club. Um, uh, now that's, that's different, just as 
old Jews had trouble becoming members of um, other clubs. Um, um, my wonderful story, I love this story, is uh, when I came to Harvard, I may have told it before, but I'll tell it again. When I came to Harvard, I was an assistant professor in my first year and I had to get tenure and it had to be approved by a committee of outsiders. And I got a call from Judge Bailey Aldridge, the chief judge of the United States Call of Appeals, who was a Rockefeller on one side and an Aldridge on the other and a Bailey on the other. And, you know, went back to uh, uh, before the American Revolution and was the, the br most Brahmin of the Brahmins. And he called me and said, uh, Professor Dershowitz, uh, our club, the Club of Odd Volumes in downtown Boston, which has as its members of Justice Harlan, and it had a Theodore Roosevelt and, and many others. We'd like to hear you talk about your research and your work. We've had the tradition of always having the young dons, it's the first time I had ever heard that word, the young assistant professors come and tell us about their work. And, and, and we would like to hear from you. And I said, uh, uh, Judge Aldridge, I'd be, I'd be honored to come and, and, and talk to you. And so I agreed to do it. A few days later, I was having lunch. I was the civil rights chairman of the Anti-Defamation League of the B'nai B'rith. And I was having lunch over at the B'nai B'rith. And I mentioned that I had been invited to speak at the Club of Odd Volumes. And um, the head of the ADL said, you can't speak there. I said, why not? They, they seem like a bunch of really nice guys. Oh, well, they don't allow Jews in. You can't speak at a club that doesn't allow Jews to be members. And I said, of course not. I'm, you're absolutely right. So I called Bailey Aldridge and I said, I'm so totally sorry, but um, I'm told that uh, your club is restricted to Brahmins. It doesn't allow Jews, doesn't allow Blacks, doesn't allow Catholics. Um, so I can't speak there. And he said, well, why not? We're not asking you to become a member. We're just asking you to give a talk. I said, that's the point. I'm sorry, I can't do it. Within, I think, 15 minutes, the dean of the law school, Erwin Griswold, came running into my office. You've destroyed your chances of getting tenure. You've hurt yourself. He is a very important person. The Club of Odd Volumes has many of our people from the outside board of overseers. You have hurt your chances of getting, of getting tenure. Uh, do you want to change your mind? If you do, I will very politely call Judge Aldridge and tell him you're sorry you made a mistake. I said, no, I'm not changing my mind. I'm sticking with it. I'm not going to talk. If it endangers my tenure, fine, I'll go elsewhere. And I didn't speak, and I've never spoken at a club that uh, that discriminates, and I never will speak at a club that uh, discriminates. And this actually leads in to another question that uh, I was asked. Um, it would be great to hear Dersh talk about how he felt growing up Jewish, uh, given the history of persecution and how he overcame obstacles to life. Woody Allen does a lot of this in his films, like like Eddie Hall, also in his in his recent um, biography, which I recommend very strongly. Uh, I didn't grow up with any of that. I grew up in a completely Jewish neighborhood. I was born in Williamsburg in Brooklyn, and I grew up in Borough Park. Um, we thought that the conservative and reformed Jews in our neighborhood were not Jewish because they drove their cars on Saturday. Um, we didn't know from anti-Semitism. Uh, I first learned about anti-Semitism when I went to Yale Law School and I was first in my class and editor-in-chief of the Yale Law Journal and bound for a Supreme Court clerkship. I was like the number one NBA draft choice, uh, except that no law firm on Wall Street would hire me or even give me an interview because I was not only Jewish, that's two strikes, 
but I was an Eastern European Polish Jew from a poor family. Who wants that at Sullivan and Cromwell or Cravath Swain and more? So I wasn't hired. Um, I did go to work for a, quote, Jewish law firm. There was no such thing as a Jewish law firm because the Jewish law firms love to get non-Jews to work with them. It gave them more status, but the non-Jewish firms wouldn't have um, Jews, certainly Eastern European Jews. They would have, you know, an occasional uh, Lehman or Morgenthau or a fancy, elegant German Jew uh, who could bring some, you know, estate work to the firm. Um, and um, firms discriminated greatly. I, I represented a young man who was an Italian-American, uh, and he went to work for a big law firm, and they gave him only, you know, clients who who were Italian-Americans. They didn't want to uh, uh, provoke any of their Brahmin clients to, to be upset. So, uh, you know, there was apartheid uh, in law practice when I was growing up. It didn't really affect me um, as a young person. Um, we all knew where we could get jobs and where we couldn't. We knew our place. We knew we couldn't live in Tuxedo, New York. That was a restricted community. We knew we couldn't get a job in Metropolitan Life uh, or in various banks. Uh, they didn't hire uh, Jews. Everybody knew it. It was an open secret. And when I went to the dean of Yale Law School and said to him, I, you know, first in the class, I, you'd think I'd get some job offers. People at the bottom of the class are getting job offers. I'm not. His first instinct was, well, you know, you don't dress that well. And he gave me $100 out of his draw, it was a special dean's fund, and sent me to J Press and told me in those days for $100, I got a blue blazer, a striped tie, a button-down shirt, loafers, and nice, nice uh, dark gray pants. And uh, I put on that uniform, that wasp uniform, and I went down <laughs> and interviewed uh, some other firms, and I still didn't get an offer. So maybe clothing had something to do with it, but it was what was underneath the clothing that had more to do with it, but it didn't have any impact. On, on me at all. Um, it's had a much greater impact on me later in life as I see the growing anti-Semitism on the hard left, uh, which is our future rather than our past. And uh, it's something that we have to continue to, uh, to talk about. So continue to write to me, write to me about what I said about Justice Alito, write to me about some of my answers and, and keep sending me provocative questions and I'll keep trying to answer them in a provocative way. See you next week.